This episode of Consumer VC is brought to you by Ferret. Okay, so let's say you're going to invest in a business or you're considering investment from someone else. How do you actually know if they're legit? Sometimes deals move so fast that it's tough to get that confidence fast. Luckily, there's Ferret, the first relationship intelligence tool for savvy investors and CEOs who need to know who they can trust. Running a quick search on Ferret can give you information like past lawsuits, bankruptcy, fraud allegations, new coverage, and also can be used to verify past successes that they claim. A new relationship is always exciting, but that also means trust is important from the start. To get in front of the line and join Ferret's exclusive early beta where you can be part of the first thousand that have an early look and help influence the product, head over to ferret.ai and use the promo code CONSUMERVC. This episode is also presented by Gorgeous, the number one help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce stores, and can turn your customer support into a private center. We're going to hear from Alex from Princess Polly to learn more. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. Our demographic is Gen Z, and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are, and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Stay tuned after the episode where I chat with Rowan from the Gorgeous team, where he shares three tips to help manage your customer support center during the holidays. Link in show notes to sign up for Gorgeous and to get two months free. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Paul Martino, for the intro to our guest today, Stuart Landsberg, founder of Grove Collaborative. Grove Collaborative delivers eco-friendly home essentials, including household cleaning, personal care, baby, kid, and pet products. I had a blast chatting with Stuart. I know I say that a lot, but I found how he started and grew Grove Collaborative and how he dealt with the challenges that he faced, especially the challenge of raising venture capital, fascinating. And I really enjoy learning from him and as well as and I really enjoyed learning from him and how he thinks about sustainable products. Without further ado, here's Stuart. Stu, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate you taking the time. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship? So I've always, I think, had two two desires that really mesh well to create sort of the fertile soil for entrepreneurship. The first is I've always had a strong desire to bet on myself. And it's a little different for me than a problem with authority because I've had great bosses over the years and great collaborators and you know very much understand that I don't own the truth. But I've always had this sort of desire to see how how you know how far I could go if I jumped off the like if I jumped right and and so I think that desire to sort of test one's limits is really sort of core to getting some joy in entrepreneurship. And the second thing was I had still have an extraordinarily strong desire to merge the power of business with social mission and believed deeply in my ability to, if I controlled my own destiny, really put the you know 80, 100 hours a week that I joyfully work, and I really do love to work, put those to something that, that not just sort of was remuneratively rewarding for me and you know would be a good career on paper, but actually could have a real positive impact on society. And so it was that, that sort of like dual lens of like, hey, how, how far could I take this, right? How good are you? Um, and gosh, I really want to kind of go change the world that pushed me to, to do it. And I will give my father some credit who is a, you know, he, he still runs a small business. That's like four people. And I think having an example in my life and you know, my father is 
an entrepreneur in a little bit of the old school sense, right? You know, runs a company that his dad started, which I think at its highest employed 10 people and, you know, at its lowest employed just him. And, but seriously, right? Like living and growing up with someone for who's going and turning the crank every day, you get a feeling for the, the joys and rewards that are a part of that. Also the pain, but anyway, yeah, I think all of that sort of meshed together to allow me to get excited about taking the jump. Yeah, we've had on a couple investors and also entrepreneurs who said that their upbringing of whether it was their father or mother starting their own business, how that was just like the common kind of table discussion about about business ideas and like entrepreneurship. And they didn't really know anything else, so to speak. So that's how they got kind of hooked into entrepreneurship because they really had that experience. And and I love how you put it, those kind of two, two major points of you always wanted to bet on yourself and just see how far you could go um, with, you know, the wings off per se. Um, and then, but also driven by like social impact and just, you know, trying to make the world a better place, which of course Grove is doing so. So with all this being said, how did Grove come together? So, you know, Grove was the combination of an idea that I've had for a super long time and my early professional career in and around a big private equity firm called TPG Capital. So my, I've always cared a lot about sustainability. Like since I was little, I've lived in a household where I was probably 15 years old before I realized that paper towels came in any color other than brown, right? I've always cared deeply about this category. And actually, this is a true story that I don't often tell, but for whatever reason, I feel like you'll appreciate it. You know, I remember vividly in college, you know, seeing the proliferation of a certain 16-ounce plastic cup. And it used to drive me crazy seeing these like plastic solo cups everywhere. Because of course, there is a corn-based alternative, right? You can buy a plastic petroleum-based, you could buy a non-petroleum-based compostable cup. It just wasn't convenient, right? Because the liquor store where you bought the keg didn't sell it. And so I was really sort of like perturbed constantly by the waste on college and on my college campus and by the fact that convenience, right, was shaping our decision. We weren't buying deliberately the less sustainable option. We were just buying what was convenient. And so the intersection of convenience and consumer sustainability really sort of caught my eye then. Fast forward, I'm working at TPG, covered consumer retail and internet, spent a lot of time in the grocery channel, and came to realize that while 70% of the U.S. self-identifies as a conscientious consumer, in most big CPG categories, natural brands have less than 5% market share even today. And that's because of the way that shelf space is done in grocery and you know, mass market distribution. And so saw the internet as a really convenient way to pair products with, excuse me, pair consumers with products that better align to our, I think, more advanced, progressive sort of understanding of what products we should be using in our homes, on our bodies, for the environment, et cetera. And so started Grove in 2012 with no idea what I was doing, um, but the very simple notion that, hey, there's a lot of consumers who want conscientious product and they're not getting it in the traditional distribution channels. Can we use direct consumer to solve that problem? And you know, the next 10 years have been you know, a series of face plants woven together to look like a good decade, but it's been quite a journey since then. That's awesome. And when you started Grove, did you start it originally as a marketplace or, or using other products? And then did you develop your own product or did you start off developing your own products from the very beginning? So when we started Grove, I had no idea what I was doing. I had a ton of hubris and effectively no understanding of the fundamentals of consumer internet. I would say I still only have like a rough understanding, right? I'm getting still, still getting up the curve. Um, but then I had really no idea. And so we made just every mistake that you could possibly make in the beginning, except for one. We really listened to our customers in the early days. We still do, but that was the saving grace. And so when we started the business, well, the first big mistake I made was the name. Uh, I am always embarrassed to share the original name of this company because I wanted to disappear into the archives of time, the sand of time. Uh, but the original name of the company was ePantry, which is just so terrible. Ah, gives me anxiety to say it. And we originally were a marketplace selling exclusively third-party product. And it was really about how do you make it easier to get the extraordinary natural brands you've come to know, but may not have access to where you live or may not have access to a full assortment, or they may be marked up. And over the first four years, it took us four years to raise our first institutional capital. 
And you've had, you know, Paul Martino and Lee Hauer and some of the folks who were responsible for that turning point capital on your podcast, but took us four years to raise that first capital. And what we learned in that time was that our place in the market overall for natural products wasn't going to be just differentiated marketplace, but that we could redefine the category that's been such a negative force for environmental health and had a really debatable, I would say, negative impact on human health as well, to be a positive force for human and environmental health. Our access to consumer data and our ability to take innovation directly to consumers without retail intermediaries meant that we could create new business models that are zero plastic, zero waste, cheaper for the consumer, better for the environment, higher quality at lower cost in ways never possible before, and really redefine the category. And so in 2016, we sort of pivoted the company from just being a marketplace to really trying to redefine the future of the category of the products that we made. And today, the vast majority of our sales are brands that we own that follow the sort of innovative spirit of how do we make the, the category a positive force for human and environmental health. So got it. So you started off as a marketplace. Four years later, you decide, okay, with all this insight, all these insights that we're learning, we can start to develop our own products that really are serving our consumers because we're listening or our customers because we're listening to our customers. What were maybe one of the more surprising insights that you found? Was there like a specific co- uh, product category or how a product was made that that customers really kind of gravitated to you that you were surprised by? There, I mean, there are so many surprises, but I think the biggest one is that when we talk about sustainability, or I talked about sustainability you know, five or six years ago, I expected this to be something that was New York, Boston, Chicago, LA, DC, right? This is the wealthy cities on the coast. You could guess where our customer base is based on who they voted for in the last presidential election. That is extraordinarily untrue. We define our customers, are people who are paying attention or know they should be. And it turns out that red, blue, high income, medium income, even lower income, doesn't matter where you live, right? Across the spectrum, people want to make good decisions for their family. Climate change may be a political issue, but very few people are like, you know what's good? More single-use plastic waste. Very few people are pro-deforestation, right? And so we have been able to carve out a really strong niche for ourselves in sustainability, right? Like really bleeding heart sustainability, but common sense sustainability that cuts across every sort of element of the political spectrum, socioeconomic spectrum, that allows us to be as successful in Texas as we are in California. We actually have better customer concentration in Texas than we have in California. Um, Like our best zip code is in Utah. Like we really do see, and this is one of the things that makes me so optimistic, that the message of sustainability resonates deeply across all different sorts of consumers. And this is one of the things that gives me gives me so much hope for the category going forward. Because if you look at our category, right, you think of, I don't know, think of your laundry bottle, right? It's a giant plastic bottle. It's mostly water. Contents of that bottle are mostly water, 70 to 90%. You know, billions and billions of those bottles will end up in landfills in the ocean in the U.S. alone this year. Everybody understands that that's bad. Right. And so everybody is on board with saying, how do we solve the single use plastic problem? How do we evolve this industry for better? Because that's been probably my favorite surprise. Totally agree. I think that everyone certainly realizes the issue with single use plastic, especially has it grown um, through media coverage and what have you about how terrible it is to our environment, as you pointed out. My question is, how do you also think about price elasticity? Because it seems like, Everybody wants sustainable products, right? It sounds great to have sustainable products. However, there's always a premium that goes along for sustainability, right? As opposed to single-use plastic, or maybe maybe you're able to have your your products cheaper than that. But how do you think about consumers today and the ones who actually spend their dollars on sustainable products versus the ones that aren't? What you just said is one of the most pernicious myths about natural products. It is a myth that natural products cost more. And I mean, it's not your fault, right? Like there are tens of billions of dollars that have gone in to making it seem like natural products are more expensive. The other pernicious and untrue myth is that natural products don't work, right? Like the CDC does not actually recommend antibacterial hand wash, right? Regular hand wash works just as well, even in the like pandemic. It's kind of incredible. And so we look at the category, we look at our role in the category. 
as one of trying to lower the barrier to trying natural products for the first time. 50 plus percent of our consumers are totally new to the category. And the vast majority of our consumers are coming from conventional brands. And so in order to make that happen, we don't line price with like you know, the cheapest bulk item on the shelf, but with other branded consumer products in the conventional out, you know, we will be similarly priced to them, sometimes cheaper, sometimes a little bit more expensive, but we're in the same ballpark. And that allows us to go after the fat part of the bell curve, right? Our vision statement is that consumer products will be a positive force for human and environmental health. It's not help the niche dark green consumers who have a super high willingness to pay be a little bit greener. We want to reach everyone. And so our perspective is we have to offer a product beyond compromise, which means better quality, lower price, lighter environmental footprint. And we're able to do that by launching different form factors of product. Take, for example, our hard surface cleaners. It's a reusable glass bottle that you can use forever. And the concentrate comes in a one-ounce glass vial. It costs us so much less to make that little one-ounce glass bottle costs us less to ship it across the country, costs us less because we don't have the plastic trigger to put in. It costs us less to make it. And so we can pass on a higher quality product at a lower cost to the consumer because there's cost savings for us. And so we look for ways to redefine products so that we can hit that trifecta of better quality, lower cost, lighter environmental footprint. So there is no trade-off for the consumer. Wow, that's amazing. That's great that you're able to have your prices be very, very competitive uh, with um, you know non-natural products. That's pretty amazing. And I and yeah, that seems like a myth. I uh, I I was really exposed to that. I always kind of think, well, before this conversation, I always thought, okay, sustainability is great, but how much does the consumer care if there is such a price difference? And so, if there isn't, though, then it's a lot easier than to actually be sustainable if you are a consumer. How do you also approach sustainability in your products? Are you vertically integrated? We are not. So we will control effectively 100% of the sourcing and formulation. And then we leverage third-party manufacturing partners uh, across the world, candidly, to make the product. We have a really rigorous process to select, audit, and candidly coach the partners who are uh, in need of coaching to have better sustainability practices. But the diverse range of product that we offer wouldn't be possible if we owned all the manufacturing ourselves. How do you also think about brands today that are sustainable? Because it seems like, um, especially for brands that originate online, that sustainable has kind of become like a bit of a buzzword. So how do you think about sustainability to you? And what do you think about like the competitive outlook today? It's a good question. I think that brands that start today are paying attention to sustainability. And brands that started 20 years ago often have a big legacy that's built not on sustainability. And so brands that start today recognize this is important to consumers. It's going to become even more important to consumers over time. And so you ignore it at your peril. And so brands that start today that aren't paying attention to sustainability, I don't even know what they're doing, right? If you look around the climate crisis, right, I think that plastic waste, obviously an issue close to me, is going to be something that most of us mostly ignore today, the impact of plastic waste, right? The fact that there's going to be more plastic than fish in the ocean in the next 20 years and We're all drinking microplastics, right? Every time we turn on our tap and every time we eat a piece of fish, we eat fish, right? Like you're eating plastic. I mean, that's going to be a larger and larger problem we're going to be able to pay. We're going to be able to ignore less and less. And so as these problems get bigger for society, the consumer, we are all going to care about them more. And so I think that brands that take a long-term outlook understand that you have to solve a long-term problem. And I really do look today at the most important companies being built as the companies that are solving the biggest long-term problems for society, right? Tesla, decarbonization of the energy ecosystem. You can look at some of the real winners of the plant-based, plant-based protein movement, right? The need to replace industrial animal agriculture, huge cause of climate change. And I think that the plastic waste issue is right up there with our carbonized energy economy and industrial animal agriculture in terms of the environmental crises that are coming at us over the next you know, 20 years. And so I believe that Grove will play a big role in being a lighthouse company, not just through what we do ourselves, but we lead a big plastic working group. We try to make all of our innovations and roadmap really transparent so that we can help lead the industry beyond plastic, which is, I think, sort of the third leg of the stool 
in terms of the coming environmental crises. How did you approach growth and how did growth maybe change once you or your approach to growth and scale change from as you shifted from a marketplace business to um, creating your own brands? Yeah, so we've always thought about scale first, right? This is a collaborative is the second word in our name because this is this is not a mission that can be accomplished by any one entity, right? And so the larger we get, the more we are able to collaborate with consumers, with partners in the space, with third-party brands, with our own contract manufacturers, the better innovation we're able to do. And so as we've grown, I think we've really doubled down on two things. First and foremost is our commitment to innovation. I think it's been incredibly rewarding to me to see that as we get bigger, we get better at sustainability-oriented innovation. We just launched last two weeks ago, for example, uh, zero plastic laundry detergent sheets. They're not like dryer sheets. They're sheets that you put in your washing machine. The whole thing dissolves away. It's very cool. Unlike pods, they can be packaged in paper. And so the whole thing is zero waste. It's like an extraordinarily awesome product, works super well, highest efficacy laundry sheets on the market, um, very quickly became gross top selling laundry skew. And it's an innovation that consumers love super strong from an environmental standpoint. And that's something that would not have been possible for us to launch years ago, right? So we've been able to use our resources to bring better innovation to market. That's the first piece. The second piece is we've thought about growth more holistically over sort of as we've gotten bigger. You know, first we started with a small community, then reached out to a bigger digital community. This year we expanded into Target and brought growth products to people outside of the online context for the first time, which allowed us to reach into an even deeper audience. So as we look to the next two, five, 10 years of growth, it really is about how do we fulfill the company's vision, which is that consumer products will be a positive force for human and environmental health. And in order to do that, we need to reach as many people as possible. And so, you know, I think we are continuously looking for ways to deepen our reach outside of just the core digital channels, which have you know, always been the company's bread and butter and will continue to be. But I think there's way more we can do as we take our message broader. So those are the two areas that we've, I think, really continue to evolve as we think about growth. What's your process when you do launch a new product? So the way we launch a product is part of the sort of special sauce of growth. And it really is all about a, a unique level of customer centricity. So we have data on everything that customers bought, what products they're searching for and not finding. We can reach out to people who bought X product, understand why they liked it, why they didn't like it. We can do user interviews. We just get, understand at an extraordinarily fine grain why people are buying what they're buying and what else they want to see. And so we'll use that to create prototypes. And then we'll take those prototypes out to our customer base in various forms and fashions over a several month period to get conviction that the product we're bringing to market is something that consumers will love. Sometimes we get it wrong. And in that process, we will kill a product before it ever goes to product development. And I actually love that, right? We'll have an idea. We'll take it to our customers. They'll say no really resoundingly. And we just saved a ton of time and money by not creating that problem. But ultimately, it's really about how do we drive the best informed innovation shots on goal, right? Products launched shots on goal. And how do we get the most shots on goal, the quickest test and learn cycle. And so we are constantly investing in our ecosystem to understand better what our customers want. So we get better informed shots on goal. And we're investing in the technology so that we can learn fast fail or succeed quickly and iterate fast so that we can take you know, the misses and build on them and take our successes and double down there. And so it's really about how do we leverage the direct-to-consumer platform to get better customer data at every, every sort of turn of the crank so that we can lower the cost of failure, improve our risk tolerance, and ultimately launch product that is more different from what's on the market than what anyone else is doing. Do you almost iterate with your customers like in real time? Like I had a couple other entrepreneurs on the show who said one of their mistakes that they made early on was they should have launched with like iteration number five instead of launching with iteration number 70. And how do you think about iteration when it comes to products? Do you 
kind of make your initial product and send it out to your a small set of customer base that are interested in trying it and then iterating kind of with them, so to speak? Or is it much more of like a drawn out process? So I think it requires a little bit of both, right? You need both the thoughtful drawn out process and you need to be getting your like early versions in the hands of consumers. And one of the really great things about the Grove platform is that we can launch, get the product in the hands of consumers, get years of customer feedback before we understand whether or how or in what context we want to scale it up. And so we have the ability to launch to a small set of customers or to a large set of customers. We can launch to ambassadors. We can launch to people who aren't or like, you know, one-time shoppers. And so we have a huge number of arrows in our quiver in terms of how we get feedback. And depending on the size of the bet, we'll launch differently. But fundamentally, we are very much of the mindset that no product survives first interaction with the consumer, right? The hard surface cleaner business model that you know, I mentioned earlier, which I think we've now got that in something like 5 million homes around the US have a Grove glass spray bottle. Someone incredible. We're probably on iteration like number 23 of that product line. And we've probably been in market with like 15 of the 23 iterations over time, testing color combinations, different vendors, different fragrance profiles, different materials, until we found the one that we have today, which I think is awesome and which probably will end up changing in a year or two, right? I think there is no done. You're just constantly on the improvement flywheel. And so I think it's a very natural thing as an entrepreneur to look at your product assortment and say, oh, I know what's coming next and therefore I am dissatisfied with what I have today because N plus one is so much better. How do you also approach, and in the early days too, the kind of the brand of Grove Collaborative and maybe like the right tone that you wanted to come across when you were just starting out? So the brand has been fairly consistent over time, and it's been consistent in that it's always been positive, right? Grove wants to help people discover amazing products and celebrate the good choices. It's not about demonizing the bad stuff that people are doing, right? It's not about creating guilt. It's not about judgment. It's about being a welcoming and inclusive place for people to improve their habits, right? And find products that they really love and you know that spark joy. And so- the brand of Grove has been, I think, super authentic from the beginning because I've learned that brand is all about people, right? Ultimately, it doesn't matter what agencies you hire. It doesn't matter you know, what fancy like Madison Avenue bullshit is in the background. What really matters is what do the people who are working at the company, creating the brand, doing the actions of the brand every day think? What do they care about? And at Grove, we've been really lucky to have a, a group of brilliant, super focused, deeply sustainability-minded individuals building the brand over time. And so that team level, person level commitment to sustainability, to quality, to integrity, to positivity, to inclusivity, all of those things flow through in the brand because those are the values of the people who are creating the sort of personification, right? From the products we make to the marketing emails we send to the color palette and fonts we choose, right? All of those things, all those tiny decisions, you, know, that you couldn't prescribe them on like a piece of paper in a brief, right? You really have to, in my experience, we've really benefited from having an extraordinary team of values-aligned brand thinkers who, who bleed Grove Blue, right? And who want the same thing that the company wants, and who you know, wake up every day thinking in the shower in the morning about how they go make the company's vision come to life. And I think that's, that's what creates real strong brand and real authenticity. At what point did you decide to fundraise? And what was your fundraising process? So I tried to fundraise right away. It was fairly unsuccessful. We had five investors in the first fundraising, one of which was me, another of which was my mom. And, you know, that made up 40% of the initial round. So, you know, it wasn't a big round, I'll put it that way. But over time, we got better. I think in the first four years, we probably raised money, I don't know, 30 times. Average check size, maybe 15 grand. I mean, it was brutal. But after the first four years, we went out to raise our Series A, and it was a high wire. We were running out of money. The business started declining because we didn't have any cash to spend on customer acquisition. It was Q2 
2016, which is when we raised our Series A, was I think the first down quarter the business had ever had because we were like just running out of money. And I reached out to 175 investors, 175, and I got 175 no's. 75 meetings. 75 of those 175 took meetings. And of the 75 that took a meeting, maybe like three were genuinely interested. And of the three that were genuinely interested, bullpen capital was the most interested. And I called up Paul Martino, who is the lead partner there and someone who I still think the world of today. Huge fan of bullpen, love what they're doing, think highly of that whole organization. Called Paul and said, Paul, I know you want to do this deal. And he explained to me all the reasons he can. And I just said, Paul, there's got to be a price, man. There's got to be a price at which you do this deal. And Paul, to his credit, said, dude, you do not want to have that conversation with me. But we ended up in a place that was fair, I think, for everyone. Ended up valuing the business about $12 million. And I think at the time we had, a, I don't know, we we're probably doing like a $6 million run rate or something like that. So it felt like a fair price for everyone. And you know that round ended up getting raised successfully, and you know in the sort of three prior years or four four following years, you know rent from raising that five million dollars Series A with one hundred and seventy five nos to I think we've raised half a billion dollars since. So you know that really put some gas in the engine and the business. The truck has been truck has been driving fast ever since. But you know my approach to fundraising has always been partner first, and it's always been one of you know, 175 no's and one yes is a successful process, right? It was like more painful than most people's Series A, but it was still a successful process. And, you know, over time, the fundraising has gotten easier as the business has gotten better. But I very much hold the belief that resilience is the key in business, right? And, you know, smart people in big markets will figure it out. Not necessarily this month, this week, but if you stay resilient in fundraising, much as in business, there's always a path through. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. Um, it reminds me, actually, when Paul came out to L.A., I met up with him. This must have been January uh, 2020. And I told him that I was about to interview Lee Hauer. I didn't know that that Paul was an investor in Grove Collaborative. And Paul just told, just looked at me and said, tell Lee Grove. He'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm like, I'm like, what? And he's like, Grove, just trust me. And I'm like, and so I like told Lee Grove. And he's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. I just told him, uh, uh, Paul Martinez has Grove to you, by the way. He's like, oh, oh nice, Grove Collaborative, cool. And then I kind of understood it and, and unpacked it. So um, that's, that's super, super amazing though, how, um, how you got Paul to invest. And of course, Lee's also incredible. Of like the 175, like what were the main reasons why investors pass on your business? I'll be honest, like back then, Grove was a super shitty business. Like it had no, we had no business succeeding. Um, you know, we were selling third party products that you could get anywhere else. We didn't have a cost advantage. All we had was a brand advantage and a plan to leverage the direct consumer business model to create new product. But we didn't really have any of those products yet. And so most people passed because they said Amazon can do this, Safeway can do this. Seventh generation and method are not that big. So how big is the prize here? Can you really build a billion-dollar business in this space? Do people really care about natural products? Those are those are the big reasons. And you know, candidly, I think a lot of them were good reasons not to invest. But it turns out that one of the things I've really learned, and I think in those days, you know, the, a bunch of the VCs had better pattern recognition of this than I did. I was just an entrepreneur showing up every day being like, I'm not going to let this house fall down. Like, I'm going to hold up the roof one more day, one more day. And, you know, I made a joke in the beginning that, you know, you string together like eight, eight bad years and you get a really good decade. That's a little bit of how I think about entrepreneurship, right? I've been doing this for nine years. Business is big now, 2,000 employees, you know, millions and millions of customers across the U.S. I think clearly number one brand in zero plastic, which I think is a super important trend for the consumers. Feel great about where we are. I'm not sure which of those years was easy. Right, every one of those years was an absolute grind. But he stringed together nine years of grinding, pretty good decade. And so I think a lot of the VCs had better pattern recognition than I did about the size of the industry, the nature of our incumbent players here, who are great brands but very, very slow to innovate. Right, the big CPGs very slow to innovate and have a massive liability when it comes to sustainability. Almost fifty percent of the one trillion with a T trillion pounds of plastic waste we create every year. Is single waste pack, single use packaging waste. 
CPG responsible for the majority of that. It's insane what my industry does to the planet. And so I think people understood the size of the problem, the nature of the incumbents, and candidly that we had a team that was hungry to go solve this. And a little bit of that, you know, the soup tastes better when it's made with love, just willingness to do anything to get consumers to love our brand. And I think people recognized that probably before I did. So I don't know. There were a lot of really, really good reasons why people passed. And ultimately, I, you know, when I look back, I'm still like, man, crazy this business kind of made it. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I am glad that those folks saw what they did in Grove. And I am, I am so grateful to all of our early investors for their partnership. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I could understand it. If you were fundraising, you didn't have products yet in market, but you know, obviously you're going to leverage the brand to build out your own products for it. Why VCs might would pass for that. But I mean, gosh, it's just amazing what, um, but all you've accomplished over these past um, nine years, I guess, after you received like your maybe first institutional, if bullpen was your first institutional fund and other institutional funds, what was that like then scaling and like the brand just like in the past couple of years? Yeah. So we were lucky that first round bullpen next to you fund called MHS Capital. It's also been a really great partner to us, Mark Sugarman there and VJ. Great guys. I want to give a shout out to as well. You know, the first few years were an extraordinary amount of work and really fun. And the thing that made it fun was we had a tiger by the tail in terms of the market and we were able to attract really exceptional people who knew what they were doing for the first time. And so it went from, you know, sort of like the proverbial couple of idiots in the garage trying to sort of like hack together the thing to, oh, we've got some people who actually know how to do this. And that just accelerated everything so massively. And so we sort of got addicted in a good way to bringing on best in class talent across the organization. And every time we bring in, an extraordinary leader, it would up-level the whole company. And we just sort of went through this period of building new product, adding new customers, driving better attention, improving the customer experience, using the data from the like higher number of customers to drive more and more product, and this virtuous flywheel of bigger customer base, more innovation creates bigger customer base. And that flywheel was just cranking. And so the focus for me was make sure we've got the right people, Make sure we've got the right strategy because everybody's flying, right? We got to make sure we're driving in the right direction. And this business requires a fair amount of capital to scale, right? We have long payback periods on our customer acquisition. And so we need the capital to you know, fund the business until those customer cohorts pay back. And so make sure we have the cash in the bank. And so we went off on a very deliberate strategy of saying, this is going to be a business that's going to support venture capital, which is to say, we're going to go for a super big prize. And we're going to have a really clear vision of how we get there and change the industry. And I think you know, we're not there today, but I think the Grove Co. brand, that is the market leader in zero plastic. And I think that's you know, manifest destiny to be a billion dollar brand. And I thought that for a long time. And so we were very deliberate in saying, hey, we want to, we want to go change an industry that's $1 trillion with a T dollars of revenue annually worldwide. And that's our aspiration. And I think setting that big vision allowed us to attract the right talent and attract the right capital to support the progress we've made along the way. Is there anything that you would change regarding the fundraising process? I feel like we've been very fortunate in the fundraising process. You know, every one of them has felt easier every single time, which I think is just speaks to the, as you get bigger, sort of the, it becomes less about the force of will and more about the actual company and the financials and, you know, the business model. But I think the thing that I would probably coach myself on early is just to take it a little less personally. As I evolved, as, over time, you know, I went from seeing the fundraising process to something that was made me really nervous. And I would, if I got a no, it would make me feel bad about myself, right? Make me feel bad about the company, make me just like feel bad to, you know, the idea that like now when I go out to market, I love it. I get to talk about my favorite thing in the world, which is my company with a bunch of super smart people. And I expect that not everybody is going to be interested because not everybody is interested in any investment, right? But like, what a great opportunity to go talk about something I love so passionately. And I also understand so much about with like the smart, a bunch of the smartest people in the world. Like these people are going to sit in a room and for an hour, they're going to talk to me about like my favorite topic. How cool is that? 
right? One of our investors is like runner up and chairman of Fed, Ben Bernanke. Like a bunch of my investors have started companies. A bunch of them are some of the smartest or capital allocators across the world. These are incredible people that I get to talk about growth with. Like what a privilege. And I really have changed my mental model from, hey, this is a judgment about me and the business. So this is just an opportunity to have an awesome high bandwidth conversation about a topic that I totally love. That also makes it a lot more fun. Yeah, I was about to say, like, it also just like kind of like, takes the pressure off as well, which is great. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Book I would recommend on the personal level is probably Man's Search for Meaning, which if you haven't read it, it's like a meaning of life book. It's written by a psychologist who's in concentration camp. And it is, I don't know, for me, it changed my life, right? Every day is a gift and every day we have the opportunity to live that day to the best of our ability. And I just, I love, I love that book. I couldn't recommend it more highly on a personal level. On a professional level, I would say the book that inspires me the most, gosh, the most is a hard one. But I would say the bet, the most salient point is from the hard thing about hard things, the Ben Horowitz book, which is every day show up like it's your first day on the job, right? Every day act like today I'm new CEO Stu and old CEO Stu got fired. And so we're going to come in totally divorced from all of the decisions that yesterday Stu made. We're going to come in with a clean palette. We're going to look out and to say, what is the right strategy for the company going forward with total ambivalence to what, what the strategy was looking backwards? And I think that clarity, I don't do it every day. I try to, but don't, don't succeed, is really so important in any innovative company to make sure that we're continuing to make the right strategic pivots and doubling down in the right areas. And I think that book, that book captured that insight extraordinarily well for me. But I, I, I'm a like, you know, I could give you 20 book recommendations. Love that. Love that. And I appreciate your explanation both. Um, actually, Rishi Garg also listed Man's Search for Meaning as, as the book that inspired him personally. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Work in an industry that makes a difference and that you love. It's like way more of a grind than anybody ever told me. And I think that's true for most founders, right? You're like, you start in it and then you're like, whoa, now I've been in this business for a decade. If I didn't love sustainability so much, if I wasn't so passionate about changing this category, I can't imagine working in this business for a decade, right? I have to be turned on every day by the category that I'm in. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work because it really is a marathon, not a sprint. And the time when I would be burning out otherwise are the times that are most important for me to be showing up full of passion. And so I think, you know, I, I don't really buy the advice of like, just choose something that you love and everything will follow. But I do think everybody understands the intersection of an important societal problem that they're passionate about and a skill set that they're good at, right? And so using your skill, societal problem that you are passionate about, I think is a, is a, really, a really great sort of foundation for alchemy. My final question to you is what's the best piece of advice that you've received or maybe a statement that you find yourself saying over and over again? I'll tell you what my mantra is, which is the only way out is through. And this is one that I developed in the early days in those first four years when we weren't able to raise institutional capital and it was so depressing and like, I just kept telling myself the only way out is through. And when I encounter hard problems, which I do all over the business, all the time. I just remind myself that the only way out is through. And I find that inspires me to just keep pushing, just keep pushing. And ultimately, like, usually you get through, right? Like that actually ends up being true. If you believe it enough, you make it through. So that is that is my mantra. And I think it's the, the single most important sort of, I, I talked about perseverance being the most important business quality. I think it's the most important thing in entrepreneurship, the willingness to push through. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I I really like that mantra. The only the only way out is through. Yeah, and I I, I also love the, the simplicity there as well. Um, Stu, this has been such a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's super fun. And there you have it. It was amazing chatting with Stuart. I hope you all enjoyed that one as much as I did. Now let's hear from Rohan from Gorgeous. Rohan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, Mike. How about yourself? 
I'm doing fantastic. I would love to learn a bit more about your company, Gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Gorgeous is an e-commerce-focused help desk. We are an omni-channel solution. We aggregate a bunch of different channels that brands utilize to communicate with their customers. Uh, things like email, chat, phone, SMS, social media, um, any way really to get in touch with potential customers or customers that are looking to buy from your brand. What we do at Gorgeous is we build in a lot of automation and machine learning into the back end of the product. A lot of times what customers are asking to brands is, where's my order? What's my shipping status? Things that are very common and very repetitive. Uh, and what we do at Gorgeous is we help brands automate certain things so that they don't have to spend a lot of time focusing on those common and repetitive requests, but that they can actually spend a lot of time focusing on things that are much more complex in order to drive revenue uh, out of the CX function. So what we do is we actually integrate with uh, three platforms, Shopify, Magento2, and BigCommerce. And what we can do with those platforms is we can actually bring in variables um, from each of the three, things like order number, name, shipping information, tracking information, things that are easily accessible without ever having to leave the Gorgeous platform. And that makes things so much easier for the agents on the brand side of things to get back in touch with customers and make sure that they're helping them in the most efficient way possible. And I always like to talk about uh, social media as well. We have ad comments from Facebook and Instagram. We have Messenger. And we also have Instagram DMs, which is one of our most widely requested features uh, all across our customer base that we can actually bring into the gorgeous platform and help brands communicate with customers and prospective customers, uh, you know, perhaps before they ever hit their website. And so we're very e-commerce focused. We have about 7,000 brands all across the spectrum from early stage uh, e-commerce e to much later stage mature companies as well. And we're also very international. That's awesome. So you're able to, with Gorgeous, to uh, brands can consolidate all requests that they get from customers, all the customers' tickets, asking where their orders are in one location. Sounds like it's going to save a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like gone are the days where brands are just using email to communicate with, with their customers, right? They're using email, they're using social media, SMS is something that brands are really utilizing, especially over the last year or so. There's so many different ways to get in front of customers. CX is much more of a proactive activity now than it ever has been, as opposed to just purely reactive. And at Gorgeous, we help brands make things more efficient from, from an aggregation and automation perspective. So you have over 7,000 customers, which is amazing, 7,000 brands. From your perspective, when does it make sense for a brand to be thinking about partnering with Gorgeous or be using Gorgeous? It's a good question. Really, our baseline set of requirements is that, you know, they sit on Shopify or, or BigCommerce or Magento too. And that with the integrations that we have with those three platforms, that immediately makes any brand that's uh, looking to consolidate tickets uh, qualified customer for us, right? And so we have customers that are doing, you know, say 300 to 350 tickets a month, and maybe they're just using a couple different channels like just email and, and phone, for example. And then we have much more mature brands on the enterprise level that are accepting tens of thousands of tickets uh, and have multiple, multiple agents on the brand side working to get back to customers. And one of the things that we do differently at Gorgeous is we actually don't price based on the number of heads that you have using Gorgeous on the brand side. So we're not going to charge you for each additional user that you have on the platform. We're actually just going to charge based on ticket volume. And, and that's how we determine where on the spectrum you are. And for that reason, it generally, in combination with all of the automation we build in, it tends to be very cost effective for brands. And not only are they saving potentially on that side of things, but they're also able to generate sales through the automation and machine learning that we have built in. And it gives a bunch of people access to the platform. So if someone on the engineering team wants to hop in or the CEO wants to hop in, they can do so. And it's not going to cost the brand anymore. That's awesome. That's awesome. As we're approaching the holidays here, what are three tips for managing the customer experience that you have for the brand? Since obviously in retail, the holiday period is the busiest time. Number one um, is personalize all your interactions with customers. The worst thing that you can do as a brand is make your customers feel like they're just a number, not an actual person. And in the event where you're not getting back to customers in a sufficient amount of time, or you're not getting them the right answer, or you're not addressing them by name, it's very likely that a combination of these things, or even one of these things, is going to convince that customer to go to a different brand. I mean, there's so much competition out there nowadays that consumers are willing to pay a couple extra bucks just for that more personal interaction with the brand. And so make sure you're personalizing that interaction with your customers and making them feel like you want to have a relationship with them long term. Number two is automate frequently asked questions. Uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier, but 
one of the most common requests we see, uh, especially in the DTC environment with brands is, you know, where's my order? What's my shipping status? When is it going to get here? Questions that you and I have both asked in the past as well. And we're finding that agents are spending way too much time manually responding to these kinds of requests. And it's not allowing them to focus on really getting in front of prospective new customers um, via a number of other different channels. And so what we can do with the integrations is we can bring in the variables like name, order information, tracking information. Um, and we could set rules in the background to automatically respond to customers if they were to, for example, ask about shipping or, or status of their order. And that's just one example. But there are a number of other ways that, that brands can use automation. The important thing there, obviously, is to not overuse automation. There, There's only so much that you can do with, with that piece of the equation. And if you do overuse it, then that takes away from point number one, which is personalization. And number three, find opportunities to drive revenue through, through customer support. Customer support, as I mentioned earlier, is no longer just a, a reactive piece of the organization. It's much more proactive nowadays. So institute live chat campaigns. Hop on a page in front of a customer uh, basically inducing them to make a purchase by telling them something that they want to hear or helping them out in, in making a decision in terms of product in your website. Utilize social media. If somebody comes in and comments on one of your ads and says they love this product that you posted, respond to them directly in line from within Gorgeous and provide them with a discount code to induce them to come to your website. Institute SMS campaigns. SMS is, is being widely adopted across the industry now, especially over the last year or so. And if you have a new product launch, announce it via SMS. People are on their phones all the time. And chances are they're at least going to click through that link to get to your website and take a look at what you have to offer, especially if they've been customers of yours in the past. And, and if they haven't, then it's a chance to, to gain new customers. So be proactive, not reactive is point number three. And you know, if you combine those three things, I think you're going to have a successful BFCM. No, I love that. I love that. So in, just to recap, number one, personalize all interaction with customers. We, we talk a lot about on the show about the trend of uh, personalizing products. Well, also personalize those interact with customers as well when they do have maybe uh, some pain points. It goes so far. And your second point, automate frequency or, or have an FAQ sheet, um, absolutely makes total sense. And the third point I love, which is turning your customer experience or your customer service center from a cost center into a revenue driver. And I think that is pretty amazing um, idea and also really cool because then you get, then you can also influence a repeat rate. And at the same time, if you don't have a great customer service center, if that's not fully baked out and you maybe aren't personalized with customers, then they might churn and you might lose them to a competitor. So that's awesome, Rohan. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 